You're listening to an event from the U.S. Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media. Okay, why don't we go ahead and get going. Uh, my name is Andrew Wilder. I'm the Vice President of the Asia Center here at USIP, and it's a real privilege and honor to welcome all of you here today. Um, I think you're seeing USIP at its best at this time of year with all the blossoms outside, so take a peek out the windows. It's really quite, quite spectacular. Um, but again, thanks for taking time out of your busy schedules to join us today for the launch of this excellent new report by Dr. Samir Lalwani, A Threshold Alliance, the China-Pakistan Military Relationship. And you should have hard copies in front of you, but of course also available on the USIP website. And, encourage all of you to take a look at it. Um, Samir, I think, leads no introduction to most everyone in this room. Um, uh, he's a leading scholar of deterrence in South Asia and has deep expertise beyond that, of course, in Pakistan, Sri Lanka, uh, India, and beyond. Um, uh, we were thrilled to be able to convince Samir to come join our growing South Asia team here at USIP last fall, and he's been very productive ever since. So. Um, the report, we believe, is very important, um, a major contribution to better understanding one of the world's most consequential military relationships between two nuclear powers, um, a relationship that has important implications for both stability in Southern Asia and for China's ability to project power beyond its borders. Uh, the report also helps us better understand how China has built military partnerships around the world uh, and how those partnerships have provided value to China as well as to its partners. Um, uh, we have an excellent panel to discuss the report. And of course, in addition to Samir, the author, we have Dr. Zach Cooper, uh, from senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, uh, Dr. Bonnie Lin, who will be joining us online, and she's the director of the China Power Project and senior fellow for Asian security at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Uh, and last but not least, Dr. Esfandiar Mir, uh, a senior expert here at USIP. Uh, before we turn to the panel, however, we are delighted to have Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Indo-Pacific Security Affairs, it's quite a mouthful, uh, uh, Jed Royal, joining us to give keynote remarks. Uh, this will be followed by a short Q&A uh, where Tamanna will be moderating a, a, um, a discussion. Uh, P. Dasty Royal is a career member of the Senior Executive Service and has a long and distinguished career in the Department of Defense. Among other roles, before serving uh, in his current capacity, uh, he served as the Deputy Director at the Defense Security Cooperation Agency, uh, Director of Defense Policy and Plans at the U.S. Mission to NATO, and Acting Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Afghanistan, Pakistan, and Central Asian Affairs. Uh, just one final housekeeping note, this uh, discussion is on the record, and afterwards it's going to be recorded, and we hope to produce a podcast uh, from it, which you can all listen to as well. Um, and with that, I'll turn it over to PDASD Royal for your opening remarks. Well, terrific. Thank you very much, Andrew. It's great to be here uh, at USIP. Thank you for that kind introduction. Yes, the title is a mouthful. Uh, I think it's assistant to the regional director or something along those lines is, is somewhere in there, but um, uh, it's great to be here. Thank you to Tamana for your uh, collaboration and mentorship over the years. I think that 
Uh, actually, most of what I learned at the National Security Council, maybe I learned from you through some tough uh, discussions on Pakistan. Of course, Diane is here as well, back at the National Security Council. Uh, and we lived a lot of really interesting times together. But thank you uh, for all of the, the mentorship and collaboration uh, over the years. I'm grateful to USIP. And as I look around the room, I'm just reminded of what a treasure trove of analytical uh, thinking you have here, but really the broader brain trust as well. The community of interest here is really very strong. Uh, and it's thrilling for me to be uh, a part of, uh, of those deliberations today. Uh, USIP is consistently producing some of the highest caliber thinking and insights. And I can assure you that my colleagues at the Department of Defense and I are thinking uh, uh, quite a lot about the work that you are producing. And we're very grateful for your commitment to providing thoughtful ideas uh, and insight on some of the most challenging issues facing, facing our national security. I'm glad to have the opportunity to offer a few words here today at the launch of an important study on the character of the defense relationship between Beijing and Islamabad. Uh, and I'll say I've benefited tremendously from Samir Lawani's uh, rigorous analysis and recommendations many times in the past. Uh, I did so again as I read this report. It really caused me to think a little bit differently uh, and assume, uh, recheck my assumptions on the nature of this relationship going forward. The United States and Pakistan have maintained an important relationship since the aftermath of Pakistan's independence in 1947, a relationship that has now continued well into its eighth decade. That relationship featured particularly complex and dynamic elements over the course of 20 years of engagement by US and coalition forces in neighboring Afghanistan. And it is true that we've had our differences, uh, as many relationships nearly 80 years old do. But Washington and Islamabad have consistently sought out common ground, and we continue to do so today. Those efforts have drawn strength and vitality from rich and deep people-to-people -people ties between our two countries, with tens of thousands of coworkers, neighbors, friends, and family members of Pakistani descent living in local communities across the United States today. It's worth taking just a moment to survey some of that common ground and to consider all of the ways in which the relationship between our two countries has yielded meaningful benefits for our citizens. We continue to cooperate on security issues where our interests align, including in efforts to counter terrorism and bolster regional stability in South Asia. And our trade relationship continues to grow. We've also supported our partner in Islamabad when it matters most pledging and providing tens of millions of dollars to assist with Pakistan's recent flood recovery, as well as tens of millions of life-saving COVID-19 vaccines. And we know that these efforts will continue to bear fruit in the years to come. As Secretary Austin and other senior leaders from the Department of Defense testify before Congress today, I would be remiss if I did not also take this opportunity to briefly share with you how we view the current security landscape more broadly. The 2022 National Defense Strategy describes the People's Republic of China as the department's pacing challenge. And it is right to do so for many reasons. Over the past several years, we have seen the PRC conduct increasingly provocative actions and dangerous operational behavior across the Indo-Pacific region, including in the Taiwan Strait and the South China Sea. This behavior exemplifies how Beijing has more frequently looked to the People's Liberation Army as a central tool in its aims to combine its economic, diplomatic, military, and technological might 
as it pursues a sphere of influence in the Indo-Pacific and seeks to become the world's most influential power. And that language is drawn directly from the Biden-Harris administration's Indo-Pacific strategy. That strategy also makes clear U.S. intentions. We seek, quote, a free and open Indo-Pacific that is more connected, prosperous, secure, and resilient. Senior leaders across the Department of Defense have been clear about dangerous PLA behavior. And I would highlight an increase, substantial increase in non-standard, unprofessional, and unsafe intercepts. And so I will be clear, as others already have been, uh, the United States will continue to fly, sail, and operate wherever international law allows. And for our part, we will continue to do so safely and responsibly. The report we're all here to discuss today is important because it sheds clarifying light on how Beijing is thinking about its diplomatic and defense relationships, including its relationship with Islamabad. I don't want to be misunderstood here. The United States does not seek confrontation or conflict with the PRC, nor are we asking any countries to be in the uncomfortable position of choosing between the PRC and the United States. We are committed to upholding a rules-based order where commerce and ideas flow and flourish without the threat of coercion, aggression, or contempt for human dignity. At the Department of Defense, we do not take that vision or that order for granted. And I think that Samir's study raises several important questions as the United States, our allies, our partners continue to strengthen the deterrence that underwrites peace, stability, and prosperity across the region. And as I read the report, a few questions came to my mind that I wanted to share today. First, what sorts of expectations for cooperation in the military sphere can accompany PRC offers of assistance in areas like trade, energy, and even humanitarian aid? What are the strings attached that could limit or constrain nations in the future? Second, how is the PRC managing relationships to its west while the PLA continues to engage in provocative and dangerous behavior to its east? Does Beijing seek cooperation and partnership with Islamabad for the sake of mutual advantage or merely to keep the neighborhood in check while pursuing more self-interested objectives elsewhere? Third, how will our relationship continue to evolve in the face of the threat of climate change and other drivers of economic and social instability? Is there continued room for that kind of cooperative environment? I think so, for what it's worth. And four, how can we continue to ensure together that countries like Pakistan can chart their own course in the region rather than see their choices constrained or limited by other countries' more coercive whims? I'm glad that we have experts like Samir uh, in places like the U.S. Institute of Peace to think about uh, answers to many of these difficult questions. And I can assure you that the Department of Defense will also be seeking clarity to those questions as, as well. Samir's work demonstrates that an increasingly competitive strategic landscape will bring equally complicated challenges in need of careful, thoughtful defense diplomacy, the kind of statecraft that seeks to reduce the risk of miscalculation maintain open lines of communication, and strengthen stability. I'll conclude by simply stating that the department is committed to doing that work. And most importantly, we are committed to doing that work alongside our allies and partners in the Indo-Pacific region and around the world. And finally, if I haven't said it enough already, we are committed to doing so in support of a free, open, and rules-based order with the promise of peace, 
stability, and prosperity. Uh, thank you for your report, Samir. Thank you for your time and attention today. Congratulations uh, on this report and all of the terrific work that is uh, coming out of USIP. I'm happy to answer a few questions if there are any. Thank you. Thank you so much, uh, P. Dasty Royal. I, it's, it's weird to call you that. Uh, it's, it's, yes. Uh, it, it, thank you so much, Jed, for being here today. It's great to have a partner and a supporter of USIP's work and research uh, at the Defense Department. And uh, we really appreciate your comments. We have about 15 minutes uh, of questions. I think uh, Jed has to head back to the Pentagon. Uh, this is on the record, so please keep that in mind when you're asking questions. Uh, if you have a question, please just uh, tilt your placard up to get my attention and introduce yourself uh, uh, before you ask the question. I'm going to take uh, the ch you know moment to ask my own question. Uh, Jed, you hearken back almost a decade ago, we were serving at the NSC together. And our relationship and our focus on Pakistan was very different. Uh, we had huge troop presence next door in Afghanistan. We're in a much different place now. We are really focused on the Indo-Pacific strategy. Pakistan's not mentioned in the strategy. It's not mentioned in the NDS. And yet, I mean, I think you make some very compelling points that we don't want confrontation, conflict. We don't want countries to be forced to choose. And so how do you see that for a country like Pakistan that has a long history, a long relationship, especially on the defense side with the United States, but this growing alliance uh, with, Pac with China with the P and specifically with the PLA, how do we actually, um, you know, it's not that they have to choose, but their actions themselves may force them to choose, right? So how do we make that clear and what is the diplomacy that you think is most important there with the Pakistanis? Yeah, I think it's a great question and perhaps something that it requires its own further study. Um, I've, I've got two thoughts in mind. One is to continue where it makes most sense, where the, the security interests of both countries continue to make sense that we pursue vigorously the opportunities that exist where that Venn diagram overlaps. And we're, we're doing that certainly in the Department of Defense, I think U.S. government-wide. Uh, and we're making sure that um, it's very clear that we're not asking Pakistan to make that choice. Uh, at the same time, I think we need to go back to first principles. And so I would also recommend that our conversations, our defense diplomacy, broader diplomacy, finds its uh, grounding, its foundation in basic core principles, in particular, a free and open Indo-Pacific region. I, I don't think that we have a responsibility to uh, make the, the choice a difficult one for any of our uh, partners or allies in the region. But we do very much have the responsibility to clarify that we will be competing where we believe that we, we have to compete when it's in our national security interest to do so, uh, and that everybody does better in a, in a free and open order that's governed by uh, rules of the road that are clear and well understood by the entire community. And so as, so long as we continue to make that point clear and we demonstrate how that works best, uh, then I think we're in a very good position. Yeah. Great, thanks for that. I'm opening the floor for questions for Jed. Um, we'll take a, you know, a few questions and then we'll move on to the other panelists. Um, Dan, please. Jed, thanks for coming. Great, great opener. Um, I, I do want to push you a little bit uh, to say something about what concerns uh, you and the department uh, actually have at this time about China's uh, role in Pakistan. Uh, Gwadar Port, 
continued ties to the pockets. I mean, all the things that Samir so ably points out in this report. Uh, how do you perceive those, or how do you prioritize those, or where do they fit in with your broader uh, regional assessment? Um, is this, uh, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll leave it there. I mean, is this, is this the kind of thing that uh, has risen up the priority list, or is it something that's off into the future? Um, it occupies a lot of our attention, I'll say, uh, right now. And it occupies um, some discussion between the United States and Pakistan as well. So I don't want to give you the impression that we are um, ignorant uh, or um, neglectful of uh, the nature of the, that evolving relationship. At this point in time, it hasn't created um, uh, an inability for us to pursue our combined interests with Pakistan uh, going forward. And so I think that it's important to, to recognize that we, the United States, are not feeling squeezed out of the South Asia picture, um, that we still feel that we have a great deal of agency and a great deal to uh, appreciate in our relationship with Pakistan. Um, but of course, we're paying very close attention to how that relationship develops. Uh, and we, of course, want to make sure that we understand it well within the variety of interests that we have uh, in the region. Uh, I will just maybe leave it there, um, but uh, perhaps reinforce one, we care, we're paying attention. Um, secondly, we still feel like we have uh, the kind of um, opportunity and room to maneuver in our relationship with Pakistan that we need at this point in time. Thanks, Dan. Uh, please go ahead if you can introduce yourself as well. Hi, Prashant Shah from the Hindustan Times. Uh, two questions. One, from the Indian security point of view, one of the nightmare scenarios has been this two-front uh, situation with China and Pakistan. With this defense collaboration, military relationship increasing on one side, and with your engagement with India growing, how do you assess the wider regional security situation if uh, the trajectory of this relationship continues to deepen, the China-Pakistan relationship? And, and a subset of that, uh, you know, the concern in Delhi often is that as Pakistan deepens its relationship with China, Washington will be tempted to appease Pakistan even more. Uh, is there a danger of that, that instead of reading them the riot act, uh, what Pakistan will end up doing is getting the best of both the worlds to the detriment of the regional security environment? Uh, so I think on your first question, uh, you're, you're asking um, whether or not the relationship the U.S. has with India and the relationship Pakistan has with China are creating binary dynamics in the region. I don't think so. Uh, I think there's plenty of opportunity um, uh, for the United States in both of our bilateral relationships with India and Pakistan, and we're pursuing those interests on a daily basis. Um, it, I, I don't want this community to leave with the impression that uh, we're the, the sides are forming up and, you know, there's some sort of standoff that's happening in South Asia right now. That's not uh, how we see it within the Department of Defense. Uh, but we are also clear with both partners about where we see uh, the competitive space forming uh, and how we, the United States, intend to approach uh, the Indo-Pacific region with respect to a, a, a sustaining a rules-based international order. Uh, and so those conversations, I think, are pretty mature on both sides. Uh, but I, I don't want you to leave with the impression here that we're just sort of facing this tete-a-tete -tete situation in South Asia. That's not, not the case. Um, on your question on whether or not Washington will appease Pakistan at some point, no. Um, <laughs> we don't have any intention of appeasing anybody uh, globally. I, I think that there could, um, there will always be complications. There will continue to be, there have been complications over 80 years in our, nearly 80 years in our relationship with Pakistan. 
but as I said in my opening remarks, we continue to find common ground in the relationship with Pakistan. As a somewhat longtime watcher of this relationship, I have confidence we'll continue to find common ground in the relationship with Pakistan. Thanks. Other questions? Maybe I'll ask another one, if, unless folks have one. You know, the Indo-Pacific strategy, how do you see, obviously, the Indo and the Indo-Pacific, the Indians would like the Indo-Pacific to actually go all the way to East Africa. Similarly, the Pakistanis often ask us, can we be part of I, you know, IPEF, can we be part of Indo-Pacific? Is there a role for us? I mean, is there any, you know, they have a border, uh, they have a border on the Indian Ocean. Is there any role, is there any vision for Pakistan to play any part of our Indo-Pacific strategy? Thanks, um, that's a great question. Um, I, yes, I, I mean, um, perhaps it was a little understated in the publication of the strategy, uh, I wouldn't want uh, folks to think that we're uh, trying to hive off this bilateral relationship and that it stands completely independent from the broader regional security context that we share. Um, again, I think that Pakistan has it well within its own capacity right now to demonstrate its um, utility to a broader uh, regional stability. So they can do that in their relationship with Afghanistan. They can do that in their relationship with Middle East countries, in their relationship uh, with China, and certainly in their relationship with India as well. So their ability to demonstrate their, uh, the merits of, of what they bring to regional stability are well within their capability and capacity right now. Uh, and on a bilateral level, we're seeing some fruit uh, born in that relationship, but I think uh, there's room for more uh, from Pakistan broadly. Please, go ahead, if you might introduce yourself as well. Sure, I'm sorry, I forgot a name tag. Steve Watts, RAND. Um, the third part of some years report is on the potential for Chinese uh, basing or access in, in Pakistan. I wondered if you might comment a little bit on what risks uh, DOD sees in such access and basing, and to the extent that we have a counter access strategy for Pakistan specifically, what exactly that might look like. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for that question. Um, we're, we are watching PRC, PLA moves globally uh, in terms of their desire to uh, link not only their economic trade routes, uh, but uh, turn those as well into military uh, uh, routes. And so um, the question of whether or not the PRC will be able to gain some strategic advantage with military base and globally is, uh, is concerning to us. Um, the specific question on Pakistan, I, I won't go into depth on that one in particular, but I, I will say that the U.S. believes that um, this is one of those competitive areas between the United States and the PRC where uh, we believe that China's intentions with those bases uh, could create military dilemmas and complications uh, for the United States and could have impact on our ability to sustain the rules-based international order broadly. Uh, so we're paying very close attention to that. We think that we enjoy a tremendous advantage when it comes to allies and partners uh, to access basing and overflight globally. Uh, and so we, we will continue to press our advantage uh, in that area. Uh, but it is important to make sure that we, the United States, continue to compete where it's uh, important to make sure that we do so should uh, anybody be looking to gain some strategic advantage or military advantage over the United States, and, and that's uh, our general intent in that area. Thanks. Great, thank you very much. Um, one here from Elizabeth, please. 
uh, Elizabeth Rothfeld, director of the South Asia program at Stimson. Um, we hear a lot in conversations with analysts in Pakistan that what they hear from China is actually they want to encourage more U.S. engagement with Pakistan. They're not playing this camp politics. It's better for China if everybody just gets along and you know we're all we're all hunky dory. Um, reading this report, that was perhaps not what came through in terms of of the capabilities that are being extended, right? And you can imagine scenarios where that would come into play. Um, but you also said that you don't feel like the U.S. is being squeezed out. So it's clearly strategically in Pakistan's interest to want to maintain open lines um, of not just communication, but capabilities coming in from both sides. Do you have a sense of, from U.S. perspectives and engagements, how China is seeing the U.S. role in Pakistan? It's changed over time, especially post-withdrawal. Um, how much space is there? And perhaps what have you seen in the course of your work in the region in terms of how China sees U.S. engagement in Pakistan? Thanks. Thank you. Uh, yes, I think that um, uh, we have a different understanding uh, than perhaps is often conveyed in terms of the broader intentions and motivations behind not just this relationship, but a, but a range of relationships. And as I mentioned in my remarks, anything that um, manifests in a way that suggests a country cannot choose its own path, that it feels constrained in some manner, to me is a really important message that we need to continue to send to all of our allies and partners. Uh, I, now, maybe I'll just say more broadly, we're starting to see a say-say gap in Chinese behavior where they are saying one thing to us, one thing to a broad international audience, and something entirely different in private, whether that's through their own uh, bilateral relationships or to their own domestic audience. And this say-say gap is one that I think we need to be, as a broad community, very clear in calling out when we see it. Uh, we should not allow uh, the PRC to be able to say one thing broadly and then something entirely different in private. Uh, and I think this might be one of those areas that, uh, that the PRC is doing that fairly consistently. Thanks. Great. Thank you so much. Um, Jed, I think you're running out of time here. Thank you so much for being here and uh, being so gracious with your comments. Uh, we appreciate it, and uh, we look forward to continuing to engage. Thank you so much. Thank you. We're going to move on to uh, discussion of the report. And um, so we're going to first turn to Samir to really thank you so much. Take care. We're going to turn to Samir, but before we do, I, you know, all of you in this room know Dr. Samir Lilwani. He joined our South Asia team uh, last fall. We're very excited. This research has actually been, he can tell you more about it, but going on even before he joined, uh, he has really been engaged, I think, in novel research, both uh, in terms of research and analysis here, but in terms of contacts and talking to people uh, across the region uh, to better understand this. So I think there's really, um, Great findings, and I can't wait to hear Samir uh, present them. We'll start with Samir, and then we'll turn to our respondents and have Q&A again at the end. So thank you very much. If you can hold your questions to the end. And um, do feel free to uh, grab lunch and snacks uh, as needed. So please, over to you, Samir. Well, thanks, Tamana, and thanks all of you for, for being here today. Um, 
I actually have a lot of people to thank. I, you know, a lot of this work was done in discussion with many of you. Um, I had really great feedback from my colleagues here at USIP, uh, some really close reads of it. So I thought this was done in October of last year and then uh, got some uh, very substantive feedback uh, from folks like us from the R to um, help me uh, sharpen some of, the, some of the work. But also I, would, I just want to acknowledge that uh, because I was working on this before I joined USIP, uh, and I relied very heavily on a research assistant to help me with this, uh, and that's Nora Davis, who's here today. I just moved to DC uh, looking for a job, and uh, if you have, uh, if, if anyone is interested in hiring her, I would highly recommend her. Uh, she was incredible at sort of uh, assembling the data that went into this project. And it was a lot of data going back, you know, uh, decades in terms of, you know, uh, force structure, uh, uh, military exercises, like so all the coding. Um, all that work has, was, was done uh, uh, with Nora, and so I really appreciate uh, all that she did to contribute to this report. Okay, so let me um, talk, I want to talk maybe like about sort of three parts of the argument here. Um, I want to sort of ex uh, explicate a little bit what I think I'm, I'm talking about when I say uh, threshold alliance, uh, and then maybe provide some, um, some meat on the bone for uh, what I think is happening in the Pakistan-China relationship and then uh, talk about some, some of the implications of that. And I, I always tell myself I'm going to sort of keep it to the time that I've allotted, which is 15 minutes max. Uh, I have a tendency to go over, but I'll do my best to, to stay within those bounds. Okay, so let me start with what, what is the threshold alliance? And this is a good question because I started using this term without ever defining it. And something was very uh, helpful to sort of say, you really got to explain this thing before you just sort of throw a loaded term out there. So I start by saying, like, as you look around the world, you can observe that there are uh, – there are very few new formal alliances in the world, or mutual defense treaties, as political scientists would often define them. Uh, very few have been signed over the last, really, 70 years. Um, and that could lead you to conclude that actually there's very little uh, external balancing taking place in the world. Or it could lead you to think that maybe it's taken on a different form than it did during the Cold War or uh, during World, the World War II era. And so this concept of uh, threshold alliance borrows from the nuclear weapons literature on threshold states. and that. That term, threshold state, describes uh, a country that has accumulated the material conditions and technical capacity to quickly transform an ostensibly peaceful nuclear program into a weapons program should it choose. And interestingly enough, um, this was a term that was used to describe Pakistan during the 80s. So it uh, naturally sort of I tripped into the, the, this literature uh, that way. So I would say that in, in terms of a military partnership between the two countries, it is something very similar, that there can be a depth of material and technical conditions and military interoperability of, an, uh, of a threshold alliance that can allow for a defense relationship to move to the edge of wartime coordination, but short of writing it down with specific mutual defense commitments. So the argument of the paper is suggesting that China and Pakistan have been building capabilities, whether intentionally or not, uh, that have the properties of a military alliance and potential functions of a military alliance without necessarily making those political commitments or crossing that threshold. Uh, but they have they have the option to, and that decision to be able to cross that threshold uh, is maybe expedited or sort of enabled much more uh, because of those material conditions. Um, you could argue that the political commitment is the most important part of, of an alliance. I think that's right. But um, while it may be the most consequential part, I would say that political choices are also quite malleable uh, and can adapt rapidly. Uh, we've seen this happen, uh, you know, in circumstances of conflict, crisis, or war. Uh, but by contrast, the material and technical conditions for enabling real-time coordination in modern warfare uh, are some of the most time-intensive uh, physical and process-oriented capacities. 
that, that, uh, that take quite a while to build. And so because I think that um, China and Pakistan have been building these uh, over the past decade, uh, I think we're moving, moving closer and closer to that, to that edge. So that's a little bit on, on the, um, the threshold alliance point. But so let me talk to you about it in, in sort of the three ways I, d I d explore this in the paper um, on arms transfer, on, excuse me, on arms transfers, on military diplomacy, which includes uh, senior level engagements and port calls, but really the heart of it is military exercises. Uh, and then sort of the, the third area is about military basing and the intellectual and material foundations for military basing potentially on Pakistan's western coast. So the first major finding of the paper uh, that might be obvious, but uh, I try to quantify it in the paper by measuring a number of features. Uh, Beijing has become the leading supplier of Pakistan's conventional weapons and already supplies the majority of Pakistan's higher-end offensive strike capabilities. So when we w went to look through each service's strike capabilities versus logistics or ISR, um, or transport, um, the, the, sort of the shooter components of each of the services are really or originate from China. Um, I estimate, based on projections of what is coming into the force structure and what is supposed to be retired over the next 10 years, that by 2030, about 50% of major defense equipment in each service will have been sourced from China. And that, to me, su suggests some pretty extraordinary leverage. More than that, China is a critical enabler of Pakistan's uh, softer uh, sort of components of, of military capability, it's battle networks. And that's from satellite ISR uh, targeting, or satellites for ISR targeting communications, to fiber optic cables, to Huawei supplied 5G ground stations and cyber networks. And so I think between the two of these, this gives uh, China tremendous influence and leverage over Pakistan. Even more so than I would say than, than some of the debt leverage that China has accumulated not only on Pakistan but a number of other states in the region. And the reason this is significant is because this is not substitutable. With debt leverage, there are other sort of players that could come in in a pinch. And we've seen that, for example, with Sri Lanka. But when your force structure and hardware sort of depends on one country uh, solely sourced or heavily sourced from one country, you can't just rip out the guts of sort of that communication structure or uh, of that hardware um, very quickly. And frankly, the, the, the example you can point to today of how difficult it is to shift away is the case of India and how hamstrung they are in being able to say anything publicly in the world about Russia because so much of their uh, arm, uh, force structure sort of depends on Russian um, sourcing and sustainment. So that's the first point about sort of the arms transfers or building this tremendous amount of levers. The second point is about the PLA and Pakistani military is growing increasingly interoperable. And here I'm relying a lot on data that others have put together on China's military diplomacy. The National Defense University uh, had this great report in 2016, and they've been updating their data since. So um, uh, uh, Professor Phil Saunders was kind enough to share with me some of the more recent data. But it's uh, compiled also with other sources that, um, that we've put together, uh, including from CSIS, from work on uh, China port visits, and some of our own sort of research finding additional um, instances of, of uh, military diplomacy. So the point is that the China's military diplomacy with Pakistan quantitatively rivals its military diplomacy with Russia. And that to be, uh, alone is a pretty significant uh, statement to make uh, because Russia is considered to be uh, one of China's most significant defense partners and some would argue even a quasi-ally. But in the past five years, if you look at the data from 2017 to 2021, Pakistan has had more military exercises with China than Russia has. And you know that's not to sort of say that there's something on, on par, uh, I, I, I hesitate to say it's on par, right? Because clearly you see this leadership relationship between Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin is something very unique, and we're seeing that play out in real time uh, uh, this week. 
But uh, the China and Pakistan militaries have accelerated the tempo and complexity of joint exercises. And you might say that something there that's taking place is more institutional. But it's not just quantity, the quantity of exercise, it's also the quality, right? So let me give you an example of the difference in complexity between uh, China-Russia exercises. So Eugene Rumer and Richard Sokolsky uh, describe the, the Russia-China exercise regimen that these exercises are typically conducted in parallel rather than jointly and do not involve tactical or operational coordination to improve the country's interoperability or joint warfighting skills. The limited scale and scope of these exercises suggest their utility beyond geopolitical posturing is limited at best. So that's two you know, Russia experts at, at the Carnegie Endowment uh, making an assessment of those um, exercises. Now let me read to you a description of an exercise that took place in 2019, the Shaheen 8 air uh, exercise between the Pakistan, and, uh, Pakistan Air Force and the PLAF. Um, and this is by Senior Colonel Du Wenlong, who says in describing this exercise, the biggest feature of the joint training this time is that it's conducted in a back-to-back -back manner whereby neither party is informed of the other situation and has to find it completely depending on early warning aircraft, predict its operations and immediately change the training plan. The training is more confrontational than previous ones that followed a prearranged plan. Besides, all the confrontational exercises are carried out in a highly complicated environment, simulating plateau or mountainous areas, so the troops have to overcome the impacts caused by natural conditions and disturbing factors. Since it's back-to-back, Without the communication of any information, the Shaheen 8 joint training features a keener sense of unfamiliarity and is very close to real combat environment with its indicators and plans all reaching the real combat level. So in the paper, what I have is a chart uh, that some of you might be able to see um, detailing some of the elements of complexity in this particular exercise. I think it's on page 15 or 16 or something like that. Um, and over the past decade, it's clear that this exercise, uh, that the exercises are incorporating more and more complex elements. And these elements include uh, opposition forces, live fire, nighttime training, electromagnetic countermeasures, complex physical environments, unscripted or unknown features, combined arms with other support elements, joint training, and large formation air battles. Actually, a lot of sort of the, the measures of this came out of a report that um, that uh, our, one of our discussants, Bonnie Lynn, did back in 2014 at the RAND Corporation. I, as I was looking at sort of these measures, I realized that a lot of them were taking place within the exercise. And over time, the Shaheen exercise, which was almost an annual exercise, was incorporating more and more of these elements. So while Pakistan doesn't have the same leadership equation with Xi Jinping, uh, in part because they've had five, five prime ministers and four army chiefs uh, over the last uh, decade plus, uh, but in other ways, the military partnership, as I said, might be more institutionalized. Okay, so let me make the third point, which is um, uh, about Chinese basing. Right? The, the material and intellectual foundations for Chinese basing, I think, are, are fairly well developed, uh, and which I think sort of results in the prospects for China projecting power over the Indian Ocean from Pakistan's western coast. Uh, it, it's growing increasingly likely. So I summarize a lot of work that's already been done on this, including work by Isaac Cardin, Steve Watts, Christina Garofalo. Um, but what I wanted to focus in on is some of the obstacles that people sort of raise as potential obstacles to why China can't base um, in, in Pakistan. So the first is domestic political obstacles. And actually, I was quite struck by how much of the elite, strategic elite discourse within Pakistan, particularly in the military journals, is already countenancing these kinds of operations. And I described them in the reports uh, that they're considering the, not just the prospect of Chinese peacetime basing and uh, operations for like ISR uh, as a listening post for sustainment of, of uh, counter-piracy operations, but also in wartime or in, in conditions of crisis, 
that Pakistan, basing in Pakistan could be an alternative route to uh, the Malacca dilemma, that it could be used to tie down the Indian Navy, that it could be used to project power in the Indian Ocean to interdict U.S. naval forces trying to swing through the Indian Ocean, and that it could even be a source of being able to impose a blockade on the Strait of Hormuz. So that, the degree to which it's been well thought out in the strategic literature suggests to me that the, this is more advanced than um, maybe we otherwise thought. And I won't go into you know, public opinion data, but in general, it's, I've been struck by not just how um, uh, broadly po positive the Pakistani public is towards China, but also that there are actual alliance-like expectations when you, do, when you look into some of the public survey data, alliance-like expectations of China, that China would come to Pakistan's assistance in the event of conflict. And given that, I think there's reason to think that the public might also warm to the possibility of sort of a Chinese extended deterrence uh, and, and basing sort of on, on, on Pakistani soil. The material obstacles are ones that I think are actually fairly surmountable. Um, China's demonstrated its ability to rapidly pour concrete very quickly and to harden uh, places where it sort of has just sort of had a, a footprint on. I think the example of the South China Sea, uh, the, the Spratly Islands in the South China Sea shows how quickly they can pour concrete, build runways, harden defenses, move in coastal and air defense assets. And I think uh, should they make that decision, it would be plausible to do that um, with Pakistan. Frankly, you could do it under the cover of building this capability for Pakistan itself. Then there's the one obstacle that gets raised about the geopolitical concerns that um, China might have. And this is one that I think uh, the work by Isaac Hardin raised pretty, pretty significantly, which is that for a long time, China's always been concerned about the blowback that it would receive from India. If it were to base in Pakistan, it, would, it could torpedo its relationship with India. Uh, but I would argue that over the last few years, you're starting to see China going more and more unconcerned about India's reactions to provocations, antagonisms, and that certainly given the number of times it's um, uh, sort of been provocative on the line of actual control, I think that concern is diminishing, right? It may not be totally gone, but I think it's, it's, it's diminished significantly. So I think those obstacles to basing are, are pretty, um, uh, pretty low, and the material conditions are, are being built uh, pretty substantially. So the last point I'll just make is about the implications for this. I mean, I think in some ways a lot of this is, is obvious. Um, Arms and influence enable not only technical interoperability uh, and interchangeability, uh, but also give China leverage, right? To the ability to, to compel Pakistan to do things that it might not want to do, whether it's provide access uh, for basing or whether that's about uh, uh, pressuring the Pakistanis to, to do things that tie down the Indian uh, military on land or at sea. The, the sort of military diplomacy has been building sort of in terms of staff engagement exercises, clearly bolsters uh, human and procedural interoperability, which is maybe arguably more important than some of the technical interoperability that's already been built. And this creates the possibility for joint operations together in joint missions. Uh, and that's not something that you hear the Chinese and Pakistani militaries talk about, but that's what other reasons do you sort of build interoperability than for that? It also enhances operational concepts and tactical proficiency for both sides, including for China. I think that's something that should not be discounted, that China might be learning a lot from the experience of Pakistan military, which has a lot of operational experience in, in wartime environments. And finally, uh, that basing could allow the PLAN to become the dominant power in the Indian Ocean within a decade. And that's in part because of what China is able to move forward into the Indian Ocean, but also in part because uh, Indian naval developments and counter-naval capabilities have really continued to, to fall behind. And this would mean China could keep uh, naval forces on station in the Indian Ocean, uh, project power in the North Arabian Sea, and even if their carrier-based uh, air support proficiencies don't uh, move quickly enough, they'd be able to do some um, air support from, from land. 
Uh, I think all the things that uh, P. Desi Royal talked about in terms of China's uh, aggressive behavior uh, in other parts of the world could be projected into the Indian Ocean as well in terms of uh, coercing other states or uh, commercial actors operating or transiting in the Indian Ocean. And it could, could threaten so the US's ability to leverage or operate within the Indian Ocean. Um, and one thing that we should consider is that this kind of base, in particular in Pakistan, relative to a lot of other places that are considered for Chinese basing, like Cambodia or Bangladesh or Sri Lanka, um, this base would be unique in that it would have it would be it would cause the U.S. to hesitate to target because of Pakistan's nuclear weapons, right? Not that there is sort of a direct collusion in this, but you you would hesitate any time that you're targeting a state that has possesses nuclear weapons. I think that would change some of the um, the counter pressure that uh, states would consider sort of bringing to bear on on Pakistan. So uh, the last point I'll just make is that there's a conceptual implication in addition to uh, sort of these specific things about the China-Pakistan relationship. The conceptual implication is this. Uh, like other types of great powers, China's path may look different. They may not build uh, mutual defense treaties, allies through mutual defense treaties, but they can build them in other ways. Uh, this is similar to some of the research that's been done on how China projects power. It may not look the same as the way we project power uh, throughout the globe. The, the use of commercial ports, uh, as an example, is something quite different. And sometimes people have dismissed that as that's not quite the same. And yet the effects could be similar enough uh, that they would be consequential for US strategy and defense policy. So if China can build the functional equivalent, uh, equivalent of alliances, that's something significant we have to pay attention to. Uh, because they might be able to obtain those functions of an alliance even without that upfront political commitment. Maybe I'll, I'll leave it at that. And I look forward to the thoughts and feedback. Thanks very much, Samir. You've put a lot on the table. It's a very rich report, so there's a lot to discuss. Uh, before we get into the q and I'm going to turn to our uh, exceptional panelists to offer their responses to the uh, paper. We're going to start with uh, Zach Cooper, who uh, all of you I'm sure know, is a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute where he studies U.S. strategy in Asia, including alliance dynamics and U.S.-China competition, and previously has served as assistant to the Deputy National Security Advisor for Combating Terrorism at the NSC and also special assistant uh, to the Principal Deputy Undersecretary of Defense for Policy at DOD. So please, Zach. Well, thanks, Damana. It's really fantastic to be here and uh, see so many friends. Um, I think some of you, like me, are kind of asking, why am I here? Uh, and my initial thought was that you couldn't get Dan Markey today because he was too busy. <laughs> but I see him there. And I know I look like Dan, but I don't actually know Pakistan like Dan does. Uh, so, so I still have some questions on that, Samir. Um, but I, I have done a little bit of work on, um, on alliance dynamics and how countries make decisions between arming and allying. And I think that goes a little bit to, to the paper. Um, I, I was gonna start off by complimenting the paper for having great data and say, Samir, this is wonderful. I'm glad you collected this data, but Nora, congratulations. <laughs> I really think you did a nice job. Um, I, I think the data for me was, was really helpful to see things that I sort of inherently thought were true, but wasn't so sure. So back when I worked a fair amount with Pakistan, uh, at the end of the Bush administration, we were doing some very different things. And indeed, you see in the data, right, 2008, you see a pretty rapid change in, in the um, relationship that Pakistan has, not just with the United States, but with China. Um, so I, I thought that was really interesting, and I, I love all the data collection you're doing, and I know, Samir, we've talked about whether you can do this more broadly with other countries, which I think is very possible and, and a really important area of research. 
Um, so let me just offer three, three thoughts. I, I don't think these are so much critiques, but maybe areas for discussion. Um, so the first thought is, I, I think this idea of threshold alliances is interesting. But I also think you could frame it slightly differently, which is that um, China is doing a lot without making an alliance. And maybe that's because it actually doesn't want to have what comes with an alliance, which is a political commitment right, to defend Pakistan. And um, I think, so in some of the academic research, right, people do think of this as a trade-off, right? Arming and allying is basically a trade-off that is dependent on how worried the country would be, the, the larger country, right? Um, that if they were to ally formally, that they would essentially be potentially entrapped in a conflict. And I think this would be the concern in China. So the question that I would be asking in Beijing is how far can we get with Pakistan? Can we get basing access? Can we get you know, a deeper military cooperation that might even push the United States a little bit out um, and, and further away from Islamabad without actually having to give the alliance commitment that I'm guessing folks in Beijing would be pretty uncomfortable with? And, and my sense is the answer is probably yes at the moment, because I don't think Pakistan has a lot of other options. Um, and, and folks in government who know this much better than I do will be able to correct me. But look, my, my sense is that um, if this was a few years ago, we might be talking about the US and China sort of competing for influence in Pakistan. I'm not sure that this administration is going to put the priority on Pakistan that would be required for Pakistan to really be able to get substantial measures of support from the United States that would um, that would benefit it in the way that you might think it would be able to do by playing Beijing and Washington off against each other. And, and this is sort of my instinct, not just for Pakistan, and, and it might be wrong, but for others in the Middle East broadly, right? You know, when I look at what the Saudis are doing now, I think the Saudis are trying to play a game in which they try and push the US to have to do more. I'm just not sure that the US government thinks that the priority area for the United States is in Pakistan and Saudi Arabia. And I think there's a real chance that maybe the policymakers in Washington will step back and say, fine. If China wants to invest a lot of money in Pakistan building road and rail networks through the federally administrated tribal areas, go for it. Have at it, right? If, if China wants to spend a lot of time and energy trying to get Saudi Arabia and Iran on the same page despite having not fixed structural issues in the relationship, go for it. So I think one question I have is, is Pakistan actually going to get what they might want from the United States? Um, so that's, that's question number one. Question number two is, are they going to get from China what they actually want? And, and here, and there are others in the room, and Bonnie as well, who, who have studied this more closely. But I, I'm sort of skeptical that China is going to be able to do much of what it's promised globally simply because I think the economic conditions in China are changing pretty rapidly, and it's going to force Beijing to rethink how it does international engagement. And you know, giving out Belt and Road promises, 90% of which don't actually come to fruition, isn't going to work in everywhere. And we're seeing in places like Philippines real backlash when big promises are made and not kept. Now, the question for me, and, and others in the room will know more about this, is if push comes to shove, does China prioritize Pakistan? And the answer might be yes for all of the great 
reasons that Samir, you mentioned in the report that, that basing access is really critical. And if you look at Chinese basing, you know, they've got the Cambodia facility, got Djibouti. If you were trying to connect those two, it would be pretty logical to think about something in Pakistan or Sri Lanka. Um, and so I can make an argument that maybe China will make this a priority and put in the time, effort, and resources that would be required to give Pakistan really what it might be seeking. Um, but I can also see a world in which the debt challenges in China and in Pakistan pose such a problem and state-owned enterprises just decide, hey, there's not a lot of money to be made here and the risk levels are too high. And actually, neither the US nor China come through for Pakistan in the way that it, it might have imagined. Um, and then just a, a final quick point, which is I think the discussion uh, that was raised with Jed about how we define how we look at the region is a really important one. And so as the US has redefined the Indo-Pacific to expand and include India and in what used to be the East Asia region, I think we've pretty clearly chosen not to include Pakistan, right, in a priority theater. And I think that has some long-lasting implications, and I don't get the sense that we're going to redefine the region differently. And so my sense is that actually um, the United States is increasingly not just invested in India for lots of strategic reasons, but is going to be looking away from Pakistan as time goes on if it continues to invest more time and resources in the Indo-Pacific. So I think in some ways my guess is that these Pakistan's dependence on China is actually going to have to deepen, which will lessen its leverage and um, maybe give the Chinese even more leverage in Pakistan to push hard and, and get what they want, whether it's basing access or other things. So really looking forward to the discussion, and thanks so much thank, for having Thank me. you so much, Zach. Thank, I appreciate that. And we would have had Dan, but we didn't want to have an all USIP panel, so we just found a lookalike. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> thank you so much. No, I really appreciate those comments. Uh, we're going to turn now to Dr. Bonnie Lin. I really appreciate you joining us from New York. Um, Dr. Bonnie Lin is a senior fellow for Asian Security and director of the China Power Project at CSIS. Uh, previously, she's you know had a, uh, been at Rand and other places, but she was also served in the Office of Secretary of Defense from 2015 to 2018, where she was director for Taiwan, country director for China, and senior advisor for China. Dr. Lin, I invite you uh, to offer your comments. Thank you. Well, thank you very much for inviting me and allowing me to participate uh, virtually. I have to say, I probably don't look like Zach, so we're, we're, we're uh, at least between the two of us, you can differentiate. But it's hard for me to see most of the other rooms. I can't really say too much beyond that. Um, but really, thank you, Samir, for allowing me to participate virtually. I was supposed to be there in person, but due to family obligations, I couldn't come. Uh, so I actually have a lot of questions and uh, of the report part of which were sparked by a conversation I actually had with Samir earlier this week. But I'd like to start off by saying I thought the report, um, as Zach said, was very excellent. And um, from my personal perspective, I think it's a much overdue and needed report. There are a lot of assessments on China's other major partners, like Russia, uh, China-Russia relationship, the China-North Korea relationship, the China-Iran relationship, but I haven't seen too much on the China-Pakistan relationship. And what's so unique about this report isn't just the overall assessments, but very data-based uh, assessments that are based on collecting extensive data over a period of time. 
having done some of that work, particularly at RAND, I know it's uh, not easy. So I very much commend Samir for the excellent work. So I think there are a couple areas of uh, either future research or areas in which I think Samir could probably address in the uh, questions and comments, which I think will help strengthen uh, your argument definition of threshold alliance. And let me just step back by talking about how I think about alliances and how I think about strategic alignment. Um, so when I look at strategic alignment between China and Pakistan, uh, I think the military dimension is very important, but we also have to look at the political and economic dimensions of that alignment. And here's where the conversation that I had earlier this week with Samir um, helped fill in some gaps, so maybe Samir can share more with the, with the audience today. So um, if we were to look at China-Pakistan, particularly the potential for them to move towards an, towards, um, an actual military alliance, I think it would be important to understand to what extent does China and Pakistan actually have shared threat assessments, both in terms of its overall strategic environment, but also in terms of their most major threats. Um, there probably is shared threat perce uh, perceptions about India, but it, are there shared threat perceptions about the United States? Probably not to the extent that China and Russia have shared threat perceptions of the United States, but maybe there is, or maybe it's a, it's a fear of U.S. sanctions. Are there shared threat perceptions about terrorism and domestic stability issues? Another related factor um, in terms of shared threat perceptions is how do the two countries think about common, how do they view the international order and are there shared perceptions there? Uh, we constantly, when we talk about China's other major partners, for example, like Russia, North Korea, Iran, there's concerns that they're not committed to the rules-based international order, right? But where's Pakistan there? I think it's pretty interesting looking at uh, China's new global civilization initiative and which countries have um, taken somewhat of a stance there. So I've seen comments from former Pakistani leaders supporting the global civilization initiative. And just recently, the Chinese foreign ministry, foreign ministry listed Pakistan as among 10 countries that in which China has either action plans or joint statements or reached common understandings about a vision of hu a human community, namely um, common understandings related to GDI, the Global Development Initiative, the Global Security Initiative, G GSI, and the Global uh, Civilization Initiative. So it does seem, at least from the Chinese perspective, they believe that China and Pakistan are at least somewhat on the same page with respect to views of the international order. Another area that would be interesting to further uh, uh, um, strengthen the arguments about the extent to which China and Pakistan could form um, a military alliance is to understand more of the nature of the political foundations of their relationship. So as we know, the China-Russia relationship isn't just a relationship between the two countries, but it's very much built on the personal relationship between Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin, with uh, Xi meeting Putin uh, way more times than any other national leader. So I was looking at the times uh, that Xi, Xi has traveled to Pakistan, and it doesn't seem like Pakistan is even among the top 20 countries in terms of number of times that Xi has visited since 2013. So that raises a question of, can the military relationship between the two countries progress that far if you don't have at the very highest levels the same degree of closeness that we're seeing, for example, between Xi and Putin? Um, and then related to a comment that Zach made, I thought it was very interesting. Um, uh, it raised a question in my head of, you know, when, when China experts talk about Russia, if you talk to them for a long enough time, they will share a latent fear that they have that Russia might at some point flip and turn on China. 
is there any concern about that uh, with respect to Pakistan or vice versa, right? Is there any concern on Pakistan's end that China might turn and flip on them? Because I think if those uh, those uh, uh, sources of latent distrust aren't there, it probably does mean a, sol or a solid or stronger foundation than how some experts talk about the China-Russia relationship. And then I have a, a couple of other questions on the military side. Uh, I was very, very impressed um, by the very detailed tracking of the Shaheen Air Force exercises. And I wonder if, um, uh, and it could, could just be a, a matter of issue of space. Um, I didn't see that much detail on the naval side. Does that mean that it's your assessment that China currently is more interoperable with Pakistan on the air side and then on the naval side? Or is it just the general lack of a public available information on the maritime side? And then um, we had also talked about earlier this week, and I think it's worth flagging, is what do you see as the potential for China, Russia, Pakistan, or China, Pakistan, and ex-third country exercises? Because looking at the uh, most recent China-Russia st uh, statement, I couldn't help but notice, again, the importance that China and Russia have placed on the China-Russia-India trilateral cooperation. It was in this most recent statement released this week, and it was also in the joint statement released by China-Russia February 4th of last year. If, if, this is, if this trilateral is an important grouping, at least in the minds of both China and Russia, what does that mean for Pakistan? Where does that leave the, the importance of Pakistan related to a question that was asked earlier? And finally, the last question, I think we might, um, I, I think you t touched on it a bit already, is um, how can we think about uh, Pakistan's role or what, what is uh, China expecting of Pakistan in a crisis or a contingency? Uh, of course, the contingency I'm uh, very focused on right now is trying to understand what would that mean in terms of a Taiwan contingency. But also, I think we also need to think a bit more of, is would China actually depend on Pakistan in India contingency? Or would China assume that the need for Pakistan is more important when China is locked down elsewhere, but in an actual China-India contingency, China can take care of the military side of that by itself. It seems a bit odd to me that China wouldn't necessarily need to rely on Pakistan in that case, because I think the military balance is still quite favorable to China in the China-India scenario, but I'd love your thoughts on that. I know I had a lot of questions, um, but it was an excellent report and it sparked many questions and thoughts, uh, as well as a need for further research. Thank you. Thank you very much, Bonnie. Those are great questions and great observations. I'm curious to hear the answers as well. But we're going to turn to our last respondent, uh, Dr. Asfandiar Mir, who's a senior expert on our South Asia program here at USIP. Dr. Mir's research uh, interests include the relations, international relations of South Asia, USCT policy, and political violence, with a regional focus on Afghanistan and Pakistan. I think Dr. Lin, um, you know, pre presented some of these questions from Beijing's perspective, and I hope Asfandiar can share a little bit more on uh, from Raul Pindi's perspective on this. So thanks. Raul Pindi. <laughs> great. Uh, thank you, Tamana. It's, it's great to be a part of this discussion on, on Samir's really important work that I've had the privilege to, you know, read different versions of, and it's, it's great to see it finally pub published. So congratulations, Samir. Uh, and great to be on the panel with Zach uh, and, and, and Bonnie, so, so thank you for including me. So, so Estimana, as, as, as you, you would like, you know, I will f focus my comments on the Pakistan side of the, the China-Pakistan uh, equation. 
And I'd start by noting that existing approaches on the, the bi bilateral relationship, in my view, have overemphasized, um, you know, CPEG, the Pakistan component of BRI, uh, to understand the sources of uh, rising Chinese influence in Pakistan over the last decade. Uh, and in doing so, some have downplayed or even misunderstood the significance of military ties. And then works that take the military dimension seriously uh, are more narrowly focused on this issue of military basing in Gawada or in other places. Uh, and even there, I think it's that narrow focus that leads people to react in two ways to the potential of China obtaining a base in Pakistan that you know, either it's not going to happen or if it happens, it's not a big deal. It won't change much uh, for the military the military balance of the Indian Ocean region or the Indo-Pacific Indo broadly. And I think the, the, the big contribution of Samir's report is that he corrects for both of those tendencies. So he pulls us away from CPEC, uh, BRI, to where the action of most political significance is, in my view, uh, the military domain. And then he provides context to the narrower sort of basing discussion and situates Gawadar and you know, other naval stations where the Chinese can be based uh, you know, into a broader military operational uh, partnership, which of course has regional and perhaps even extra regional uh, implications. And, you know, as he's been discussing, the, the big uh, uh, contribution is this provocative inference of China and Pakistan being a threshold uh, alliance. Uh, you know, the findings related to military transfers, especially in the naval domain, I was actually more than the Shaheen, I was struck by uh, by some of the naval systems that Pakistan is on track to acquire. Even the naval exercise, the, the Sea Guardian, where uh, I think the st you know, statements have said that you know, the two sides uh, uh, you know, practiced uh, these joint maneuvers, you know, anti-ship, anti-land, and anti-submarine um, you know, together. I think that's really interesting. Uh, you know, the, and then the, the, the Pakistani reliance on China's uh, satellite navigation system, Baidu, uh, for its conventional uh, weapon system, but also potentially nuclear weapon systems. I think all of that's really important. So, so that's the, the, the good stuff. Three sort of comments, questions, you know, some mild critiques, I'd say. But, but let me start with this inference on, on threshold alliance. And, you know, I think like Zach, I am not convinced. And this is, you know, this is, we've, we've spoken about this as well. You know, at one level, I wonder if this notion of threshold um, borrowed from the nuclear proliferation breakout literature uh, applied to alliance politics, is it really sort of applicable? I'm still in two minds uh, about that, but let's assume it is. You know, I think a threshold implies this sort of one step, really a big political decision uh, on collective security and mutual defense. Uh, but you know, as I read the evidence, Pakistan, even after the projected transfers, will fall well short of the capability required to be locked in a credible sort of mutual defense collective security arrangement uh, with China. Uh, and I think there are more than a couple of major political decisions uh, pending uh, as well. And, and the main one, perhaps the, the thorniest one, is on nuclear use. So. Given Pakistan has nuclear weapons, and I think you alluded to this as well, on how that can complicate U.S. targeting, I think a threshold commitment to uh, collective uh, security and mutual defense raises some very complicated questions for both China and Pakistan about escalation dynamics as well. And I don't see 
growing transfers, complexity, diplomacy, even basing discussions, really sort of speaking to that, you know, as to, you know, what direction that will take. Nevertheless, you know, it's possible that the two sides have uh, mis misperceptions about, you know, how easy uh, this, uh, you know, th these uh, nuclear dynamics would be. Uh, you know, in that case, what would convince me that they are at the threshold is if there was uh, evidence sort of indicating joint planning, relative agreement on uh, Taiwan or uh, escalating India-China uh, LSC contingency. And on, on the latter, I'd note that, you know, th that it's striking that Pakistan basically uh, stood on the side as India-China India um, sort of sparred, um, you know, along the LSC. I think if Pakistan had done something, then that would have been extremely telling on, on where the relationship is at politically. The fact that it didn't is important, and I think one of the more compelling sort of data points for me that uh, things are not at that threshold level. Another question that, you know, I think the report raises is that, you know, this is a very deep alliance, uh, or alignment at least. You know, what explains it? Why is Pakistan sort of at this stage? And I converge on uh, two explanations, two different explanations, but, but I think they're not mutually exclusive. First is the classic sort of Steve Walt balance of threat explanation on origins of alliances. I think the political scientists in the room uh, would, uh, you know, would, would I'm sure have some memory of that. Um, you know, I, I think there's a, this is a textbook example of an alliance. Uh, you know, for uh, Walt's uh, theory, you know, Pakistan perceives threat from India due to its aggregate power, proximity, offensive capabilities, you know, lots of strong opinions about uh, Indian intent in, in the Pakistani military culture. But I think it goes beyond threat perception and strong bureau bureaucratic politics seems to be at play as well. Uh, and, you know, as, as you imply, and I think in, in parts of the report you note, you know, parts of the Pakistani system, national security sort of system enterprise, have long been asymmetrically dependent mm -hmm. on the Chinese. So this includes the nuclear enclave, in particular going back to the 70s, but also the Air Force and the Navy, perhaps even the intelligence service uh, ISI. So all of their bureaucratic incentives individually, I think, have been you know, pushing towards uh, a, a closer relationship with China, which, which is why things are at where they're at. So, Final point, just to round off on, you know, U.S. policy on on Pakistan, uh, you know, I think Zach uh, took some of my points, but but I will, I'll use them them again. I think we've been somewhat lost on Pakistan policy uh, for a while now, a bit before, but really since the Taliban takeover of Afghanistan, uh, and we have oscillated between well, let's punish Pakistan, offer inducements, broaden out find common ground on climate change. That, that's the, the more recent sort of push. I think the good news is that the report gives us a very clear goal uh, to hold the Pakistan policy to and you know, put a premium on this particular priority. I mean, despite my skepticism of the threshold inference, I think you are demonstrating that there is a strong military nexus. And for an Indo-Pacific eventuality, uh, it offers a range of options. And I think for India, the second front risks are not sort of tr trivial. I, I think those, those risks are, are real. So, you know, put another way, Pakistan certainly offers military utility to the Chinese uh, that can result in direct threats against the U.S. and U.S. interests as well. And, and that means at some level trying to decouple this alignment 
is a worthy goal. But, but I think the bad news is uh, that the choices uh, a decoupling policy objective implies uh, you know, uh, are really stark. Uh, so you can threaten punishment or impose punishment on Pakistan, uh, but that will more rapidly remove the political barriers that are sort of holding the relationship back. The, you know, the price the Chinese have to pay, I think, will go down to, to have the, the alliance on their terms. You could offer inducements, in particular to parts of the Pakistani bureaucracy that remain keen on sort of deepening ties with China. So that's the nuclear enclave of SPD, the space mission that they have, Navy, Air Force. But of course, you know, I think as Prashant pointed out earlier, that will come at the cost of frustrating New Delhi enormously. And finally, and, and I think Zach uh, hinted at this, you know, there will always be the question if Pakistan can really be flipped. Uh, either with punishment or inducements, mm -hmm. given how dependent it is on the Chinese, uh, and it's much more negative threat perception of the United States, especially given the shadow of Afghanistan. So I'll stop there again. Congratulations. Thank you so much, Asfandiar, for those uh, great comments. Uh, before we open it up for discussion, I'm going to let Samir answer some of the key things that were raised, and I, you know, some of the things that I saw uh, that were raised. Just you know, feel free to answer any of them, but some of the salient points that I saw, Zach really talked about the contours of this political commitment to defend, you know, to, to, to reach an actual alliance that maybe China d actually doesn't want to make it. So if you can talk a little bit about what you found about the qualitative sort of contours of what that political commitment would look like. And I think he really summed it up when push comes to shove, does China actually prioritize Pakistan, right? I think that's really key. And on the flip side, with all our Indo-Pacific reality, is Pakistan actually going to get what it wants either from us or from China, to be honest. Um, and then Bonnie, I think, really uh, talked about some really interesting things. I think if you can talk about the leader-level um, relationship that she doesn't have, I think, with the parade of Pakistani leaders in the same way maybe that he has with Putin. Also, this idea of latent mistrust. Is there a latent mistrust in that relationship? How much is there that either of them would flip, or are they very comfortable in this relationship? I think contingency is another uh, interesting question that she raised, whether on Taiwan or India. In reality, does China actually depend on Pakistan in any of these contingencies? And then you might want to comment, she raised naval, uh, you might want to comment on that. And I think Asfandiar talked, uh, you know, obviously you can argue whether it's a threshold alliance or not, but let's accept that it is. Um, that coming back to that big political decision collective is sort of, are we so far from that or are we very close to it? I think there's, uh, there's some debate there, and then also, how how short are how short is Pakistan of actually even being able to be in that mutually defensive position? I think a uh, question on nukes as well. Um, how much have you considered that in this? And then last, I think U.S. policy really the the two front war um, uh, and decoupling. Is there a policy objective for us to draw out? Uh, of the research. So those are some of the things. They put a lot on the table. I welcome you. Just some small questions. Uh, no, this is great. I, I, I will not plan to even try to attempt to answer all those questions. I think in part because I just need to think about a lot of this stuff. So this, you've given me a lot of food for thought to maybe write another report over the next two years. Um, <laughs> but uh, but I, I mean, I, I really appreciate sort of the, the, the feedback on this. And it's sort of giving me a sense of how to think about how to structure some of these arguments, not just with the China-Pakistan relationship, but like to think more broadly about alliances, because that's that's where I really want to go with this in the future. Is to think, um, 
more creatively about what we mean when states align with each other uh, and sort of what kinds of effects it has on military strategy and deterrence and, and sort of geopolitics. Okay, so I'll just try to sort of pick a handful of things that I have some thoughts on real quick, uh, but again, no, by no means answers. On this political commitment question, um, I actually agree with everything you said, Zach, on that, that I don't think China ever has to make a political commitment to Pakistan. And so maybe it's the poor language of uh, the poor uh, sort of nomenclature of threshold lines. But what I'm trying to say is that you need never make a political commitment to have military effects. Mm -hmm. And uh, and that to me is and those military effects are significant and have you know political effects and stuff. Um, you can choose sort of in, in the height of, of sort of a crisis or a wartime to say we're going to sort of like sign a pact that says we're going to. You know, these, and China sort of Pakistan says these are the terms for if you want to start using water in the event of like the Taiwan crisis has gotten out of control, you need to sort of like defeat a blockade. But um, but I but I I don't think that's sort of like you consciously have to do that in order to still leverage um, the, the 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 territory. And to me, the the canonical example um, is actually the U.S. experience with Pakistan. Right, we were able to leverage Pakistan's territory for military effects in Afghanistan to prosecute a war in Afghanistan to conduct sort of twenty years of CT operations in Afghanistan without ever saying to Pakistan, we're going to defend you. Right? You don't need not mutual sort of political commitment to, um, now there are other terms of that relationship. There was an exchange in terms of you know money, materiel, training, other things. Uh, but, but I guess that's sort of like, I think it can be short of the political commitment and still be hugely consequential to, to US strategy. Um, and you know, you're right about the point about sort of prioritizing Pakistan. I don't think it is the priority but I think it's sort of like, it's the same way that like, India is not the priority for the sort of the US strategy in Taiwan. But if you think this is gonna be a multi-theater war, you, sort of have, you have to sort of consider like multi-theater contingency, then this country is sort of a really important player. If it sort of essentially expands to the Indian Ocean. Mm -hmm. um, and that's where I think for, for China, like if, if it has to sort of think about contingencies in the Indian Ocean, uh, whether because you're, you have to sort of like, um, you know, counter pressure on the United States, or you sort of need an alternative to the Malacca Straits. Like, then I think Pakistan's your best bet in that region. So that's that's just sort of my 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 intuition. But again, that sort of will rest much more with China scholars sort of looking at sort of what what China actually thinks about this, rather than sort of what my my inference is. Um, so, uh, on, on sort of so some of the points, Bonnie. Raised, I mean, Bonnie, you, you raised this question about sort of like with the naval side, and actually, I I worry more about. The naval cooperation, or I think the naval cooperation in some ways has a potentially much more advanced than the air cooperation. Or air. The air defense exercise regime has been going on for 10 years, so there was like a lot of data, which was actually made it sort of really useful for the purposes of that uh, that graph to sort of assess what sort of the the, uh, the what's the delta over time. But I think the the Sea Guardian exercise that uh, as Fundir alluded to actually in some ways to me seems to be more interesting. Uh, but it's only about, uh, it, there's only been sort of two of those exercises in 2020 and 2022. There were previous naval exercises that took place in the, um, in the teens, but they, uh, they weren't a named exercise. I don't think it sort of had like a formal regimen. And so now I think it would be important for us to be tracking sort of what happened in the Sea Guardian exercise. And the, the thing that happened, the, the most recent one, 2022, the press reports, particularly coming from the Chinese side, were talking about one of the things they did with this exercise was to have Chinese surveillance assets, air assets, uh, collecting data, feeding targeting information to a Pakistani frigate, which is a you know of, of Chinese origin, uh, and then coming up with a targeting solution for sort of a missile attack. And so to me, that was the, the very definition of interoperability, multi-platform, multi-country. Uh, uh, and so that that to me suggested 
you know, why would you practice that unless you have some plan, you, know, you at least sort of want to have the ability to be do, able to do this together in a conflict scenario, which is not like, you know, a CT operation because you're using missiles, right? Like, so, so I, I thought there was something more there and it's worth tracking that pretty closely because I think, I think that's the future. I mean, that's to me where it sort of has the most profound effects on not only U.S. strategy, but fr frankly on India too. I think India, as Prashant noted, thinks a lot about sort of this two-front war on land. They think about sort of the continental problem and sort of the fact that or the possibility that these two armies would aggregate their sort of stre strength or come at uh, India from different angles uh, or, or different sort of theaters that would really uh, make Siachen vulnerable. Mm -hmm. I, I, I mean, I guess it's possible that they would think about that. I haven't seen the, the army exercise that they do is actually, a, I think, a CT exercise between China and Pakistan. So I don't see sort of that happening um, in that coordinated fashion, but I worry more about in the naval domain, like what, what uh, Pakistan and China can do together. Uh, and, then, and then there's this question again of sort of like, how much is Pakistan, how much are you counting on Pakistan? I mean, think you, uh, Bonnie asked this question, but I think Asfani alluded to it. How much is China counting on Pakistan for mutual defense capabilities? And again, I think this is where we have to sort of, it's actually not new to the alliance literature. There's a great sort of article from James Morrow like 30 years ago about how we think oftentimes of the model of alliances capability aggregation where two partners are uh, sort of collectively defending each other and building the capability to defend each other. And actually most alliances are asymmetric. They are us, uh, us, the United States sort of pledging to defend a country in exchange for something. Uh, and, and oftentimes our exchanges with our, our partners like Japan or uh, Korea or Philippines are access or, or, or basing. Um, and there's some sort of you know, expectation of body, but we're not hoping for Japan to come to defend the you know, continental United States in the event of you know, we're facing sort of a, a conflict with Canada, I, I, I don't think. Uh, maybe that's what the terms of the, of the treaty, but, but to me it's, 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 it's a, the, the asymmetry is okay because you can still have other forms of exchange and sort of security exchange rather. Um, I think, uh, and the last thing I'll say about is sort of the nukes question, Sonia, I'm glad you raised it. You know, I haven't thought about the way you have, which is like, yeah, this is a real dilemma. If you're gonna, if you're gonna sort of partner with a country now are you responsible for their nuclear strategy and targeting and sort of like how they, uh, and, and sort of the, the risks that they run with that. Um, and, uh, but I've thought about it in the other, on the reverse side, which is that, and I alluded to this earlier, it's a really interesting problem where um, the sort of the, the, the shield by which sort of like you have, that you can get with nuclear weapons um, can be afforded to uh, a partner potentially, right? So. And then, again, I go back to the point that if China based anywhere else, in Sri Lanka and Bangladesh, I don't think India would hesitate to target those sites in the event of a, a war or like in the event of you know, war between India and China, and I think the United States as well. I think if you're basing out of Pakistan, uh, which then also sort of, sort of sets up some sort of mutual commitment, if not, you know, at the very least, Pakistan wouldn't want to defend its own territory uh, and it's a nuclear power. I think that sort of complicates, complicates the targeting in a way that, uh, frankly, I haven't thought how uh, th th thought through that too much, but uh, it certainly is different. Um, and that's, that's something that uh, I think warrants more discussion. Anyways, I, I don't wanna go any further because I think that there's just more to, to marinate on there. Yeah, well, this is setting us up for great future research at USIP, so this is uh, wonderful. I wanna open up the discussion and maybe we'll take a, a couple questions in, uh, at a time. Uh, just in, for sake of time, but welcome thoughts on the paper, but also questions for the audience. So I'm gonna just uh, call on uh, folks uh, right here. We'll take this one and, and Jack Gill, and then we'll go to that side of the room. Go ahead. 
thanks for those who don't know me. Uh, my name is Iskander Raymond. I'm a fellow at the Kissinger Center. Uh, thanks for a really um, fascinating set of remarks. I've not yet had the time to read the report, but I'm really looking forward to delve into it. Um, I had two short questions. One is more narrow and operational. One is a little bit broader in focus. Uh, first of all, to echo some of the uh, remarks that were just made, uh, my degree that I think out of all of Pakistan's services, the Navy is probably the most dependent on Chinese hardware and in extent so the Chinese shipbuilding industry, whether it's in terms of frigates, fast attack craft, and submarines. And on the issues of submarines in particular, um, I was wondering if you could speak a little bit more to the Hangul-class submarine project and the implications that that might have for both conventional and potentially nuclear dynamics in the region. Uh, the second broader question is that we've seen China become a much more active and influential actor in the Middle East and in the Gulf region in particular, as evidenced most recently by the uh, summit or encounter or whatever you want to call it, brokered by um, the Chinese in Beijing and between Iran and Saudi Arabia. At the same time, uh, we know that Pakistan's security and intelligence services have historically maintained very close ties with some Gulf partners and with Saudi Arabia in particular. So I'm just wondering to what extent might China also view Pakistan as a potentially useful conduit um, as it strengthens its relationships with some of these Gulf partners. Thanks. Why don't we collect one more, Jack? Thanks, and, and thanks, Samir, for this report. I really agree with uh, Dr. Lin on her comments about this is a, an area that has been grossly neglected, and you've really done a service by, by addressing this. You've also, among other things, you've highlighted something that people have overlooked, I think, for decades, which is that China has, for decades, been Pakistan's principal arms supplier, not the United States. Although the United States is viewed that way, it has not been true for a long, long time, and you brought that out very, very nicely. Um, I think, as a comment, that, uh, and I'd be interested in your view, that one of the things that China worries about is Pakistan's capacity for taking uh, dangerous actions. So Pakistan is sort of risk acceptant in a way that might not be uh, very pleasing for Beijing. Uh, the United States, of course, has never found that arms supplies provide much in, the term, in terms of leverage. China's case seems to be different. Maybe you could comment on that. But I'd be particularly interested in any thoughts you have on China, Pakistan, in the SCO. And because there are, there are certain, quote, exercises, unquote, that go on there. But what about China's role with Pakistan in these multilateral institutions, particularly the SCO? Um, maybe I could defer some of these questions to my, my panelists. Uh, I could take a crack at a couple of them. But I feel like, I don't know, maybe, Bonnie, do you, <laughs> do you think you could sort of think about, uh, talk, talk about the SCO um, one? And then, Sundar, maybe you have some thoughts on the um, sort of uh, the Gulf, the Pakistan is sort of this conduit to the Gulf. Like sure. that. Uh, so on the on the Hangar class submarine, yeah, I'm glad you raised this. I didn't get to go into it in detail. Uh, look, it's delivery is supposed to happen this year. Uh, there was a recent sort of statement that put out that um, the expectation of the first one is to arrive in this year, and then sort of every six months, sort of the new ones to be sort of onboarded. It's supposed to result in sort of eight Type 39, uh, Type 39A submarines, um, which, as I understand it, I think can actually be a huge game changer in just the naval balance between Pakistan and India, right? Because India has always had this advantage, but it's really slept on its naval developments over the last decade. And I've read uh, Iskander's work on this is, is, is excellent. Uh, and I think this could be a real problem for not only India, but also the United States, right? Because if, 
if you have um, imagining that Pakistan sort of took upon itself the role of sort of being, uh, you know, activating their submarines to sort of disrupt shipping in the North Arabian Sea, Indian Ocean for periods of time, uh, I think they could be quite active in that, and it could cause problems for the U.S., its partners, for India, et cetera, if, if it sort of took on that role. I mean, there are some analogs in the Cold War with, like, sort of how uh, Japan sort of was, like, outsourced, uh, sort of outsourced this role for um, anti-submarine warfare in, in the Pacific in, in the event of sort of a, a conflict with, with USSR. Um, but I also think there's another dynamic we should be attentive to, which is not even specific to an actual confrontation, but rather if... Pakistan sort of assigns uh, the nuclear mission to some of these Type 39A submarines, which I think it's likely, because I think their Augusta-class submarines are pretty old, 1970s. France is not going to help sort of um, sort of do life extensions on them, is my understanding. So I think they have to be retired soon, in which case um, it would make sense for them to move on to that. But if they're not all nuclear sub, uh, sort of nuclear-capable submarines, then you have a um, you know commingling problem, sort of a dual use, like some are conventional and some are uh, nuclear-capable. This is a confounding problem for anti-submarine warfare that would be conducted by India, certainly tracking uh, Pakistani submarines. And it might even sort of complicate uh, the challenge of if, if India is doing ASW on uh, tracking Chinese subs and sort of there's a confusion because China is also operating the, the hangar class. Uh, I mean, there's an export variant, but I'm not sure how sort of precise the difference of the signatures would be. Uh, but it could, I think it could cause problems where you think you're tracking or sort of stalking a Chinese sub and trying to sort of just force it to surface, and it turns out it's actually a Pakistan nuclear-capable submarine, and suddenly you're off to the races. So there's some really interesting accidental inadvertent escalation dynamics to think about once that happens, but I guess it'll, it'll take some time. Um, and, yeah, Jack, I don't have a good answer on the question of, like, sort of what is, Pakistan's, uh, what is China's leverage over Pakistan um, if it sort of behaves dangerously. I'll, I'll just say that... I've been struck, um, and I think Dan sort of can speak to this even more, but I've been struck by how, time, how, how sometimes uh, Chinese interlocutors are not as concerned about sort of the, the dangerous posture that Pakistan adopts, and sort of particularly with um, sort of higher levels of alert and readiness uh, uh, or sort of you know, forward deployment of, of battlefield nuclear weapons. So, so I wonder if it, it really concerns them nearly as much, and maybe in, in a way that's an advantage uh, to some degree. I don't know. But I mean, I'll defer to my colleagues on other ones. I can comment really quickly on Pakistan and SCO. I think it's important to remember when you talk about the Shanghai Cooperation Organization that India is also part of it, which really complicates any um, any uh, activities that are can be more targeted at India or in some ways at the United States. Um, and I, I would also point out that um, and you may have seen this in the news, that some of the recent reporting on the SCO in which India is hosting one of the next high-level meetings, it's the tensions between Pakistan and India that's raising questions as to whether Pakistan is even going to go or not. Um, but broadly, for, on the SCO side, it has been a venue for particularly the ground forces to exercise with each other using anti-terrorism exercise as sort of a larger framing scenario. But I guess my, my own concern is since India has always been in the SCO at the same time as Pakistan, I just don't see that as too useful of a venue for Pakistan to uh, grow closer to China, given that India is mostly there for these major ac activities and exercises. Yeah, so uh, on the, the Saudi-Iran uh, rapprochement mediated by the, the Chinese, uh, the Pakistanis um, issued a statement uh, taking credit for 
actually initiating the, that process mm -hmm. and that they, as they said, that they hosted the first meeting uh, on the sidelines of, uh, I believe, uh, an OIC meeting. Um, so, so that was interesting. But in terms of political effects, uh, I, I think on the one hand it reduces this ambivalence that, um, that the Pakistanis have about you know, this uh, Chinese sort of led international order or the whatever the alternative is to the rules-based order. Uh, and I think seeing their, their you know, friends in Saudi Arabia you know, warm up to the Chinese in that manner, uh, I think you know, pushes them closer to this, this uh, consensus with China on, on the international order. But on the other hand, I think it increases their nervousness about um, uh, the price that they might be able to demand of the Chinese for, say, Gawadar, right? Uh, I think uh, if the Saudis and the, you know, and the Iranians are uh, cooperating uh, and Iran is sort of, you know, more rehabilitated in the region uh, and the, the Chinese are able to do more there, they're also able to do more in, in the Gulf, then the utility of Gawadar, you know, at least in their perception, goes down. You know, it doesn't go away completely, but it certainly drops the price that they're able to put on, 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 on that port or other naval stations as well. Great, thanks for that. Why don't we collect a few more, Vivek, uh, Elizabeth, and then uh, Navjor, we can just go down the line here. Yeah, thanks. Um, I wanted to just ask about um, the issue of counterterrorism and, and internal stability, which I think was alluded to. Um, you know, we've seen an uptick in, in attacks against PRC nationals and facilities by both bullet separatist groups and the TTP. Um, we've also seen nonviolent protests um, sort of emerge in Gwadar that are in part driven by um, the PRC presence. So I'm just curious, um, you know, to what extent, um, I guess, is Beijing really concerned about an increased presence or a closer relationship exacerbating some of these CT concerns? Um, and is there a concern that, um, you know, they're going to be sucked into dealing with stabilization and, and sort of broader counterterrorism operations. Um, and then on the flip side, I, I guess I'd, I'd like to hear more about the extent to which Islamabad views Beijing as a viable or useful CT partner. Awesome. This follows well. Um, congrats, Samir. I uh, really, really learned a lot and appreciate it. I wish there were a recommendation section. Uh, so I would love to uh, hear you out on what we in Washington should do about it. Um, reading through the last section, right, on, on politics, um, it was notable in following on with what Vivek was saying, focusing on the political side of the relationship, there are a whole lot of interlocking issues that over time could actually go in a negative trajectory, even if the U.S. does nothing, right, just between um, China and Pakistan. And so is this kind of a sit on our hands and, and wait to see? Um, one of the ways that you say things could go south is if Pakistan were to lose access to Western export markets. Is that an, you know, an argument for actually starting to turn the screws and having some consequences for what this looks like? Um, or, you know, we hear fairly often from the Pakistanis about uh, some platforms that they want to acquire third hand from places like Jordan, Egypt, maybe, you know, is there a case for, for keeping a light on in the relationship on the mill side? Thanks. Thank you, Jay. I just wanted to reference Prashant and Aswandhya's comments um, and just sort of give you a sense of what we get to hear from experts in Delhi. 
Um, interestingly, of late, uh, a lot of our uh, interlocutors in the strategic community in Delhi have said that um, they're not very worried about Chinese, Pakistani um, military dynamics, and that there are two particular reasons why. So a lot of navalists in Delhi are of the view that even in a best case scenario, China cannot really afford to bring more than perhaps 20, 25% of its naval assets to play in the Indian Ocean region. This, this is sort of a dominant understanding in, in uh, Delhi right now. The fact that China's own troubles in the South China Sea and East China Sea cannot allow Beijing the luxury of deploying its assets in, in, in a significant way uh, in the Indian Ocean. So that sort of uh, underplays the fear of Chinese uh, Pakistani naval coalition in some way affecting India's dynamics. The other thing that has been noted in Delhi in particular is the reaction after um, the Indian government's actions in Kashmir. There was a lot of loud rhetoric coming from Islamabad, but what has been of particular interest to a lot of analysts is that Islamabad has not really followed that up in terms of dialing up tensions uh, on the western border. It has not used that opportunity when India has a hot border with China right now. Uh, in fact, quite the contrary, uh, uh, strategists in Delhi point out that uh, com the strategic community in Islamabad and the leadership was actually game to dialing down tensions. And that points to something much deeper. I think the reading that Delhi made of this situation is that uh, it's taken a lot of people by surprise that the new regime in Kabul has actually forced Pakistan to deploy much larger percentage of its assets on its borders with Afghanistan rather than on the one with India. And that has implications for how India perceives this threat. Um, I was just wondering if uh, that is something that you sort of um, you know, thought over if, uh, if, if that might be of relevance to what you brought about. Thank you. Okay, I also, again, heard like some questions that, are, that I think are better suited for other people. Like maybe, Zach, you can talk about sort of that, that sort of New Delhi's nonchalance or sort of relaxed nature about the naval um, posture in the Indian Ocean. Uh, I'll try to go backwards because I just remember them, they're fresher. But like on this last question, because it got raised before, right, about the fact that Pakistan conspicuously did not try to stir things up during 2020 uh, during the China-India border crisis. I think that's right. I mean, I, I think it's all very consistent, and clearly it was a signal that they did not want to um, uh, complicate their own relationship uh, or signal that there was sort of a two-front um, effort underway. Again, though, that's speaking so, – so I'll say that, like, I think that's all true, and I think it's quite – I understand actually why Islamabad would not want to make things spicy on its border with India today because it's facing sort of this this Western border. Actually, the quietest period of time over the last like two decades of India-Pakistan relations were 2003-2007, which um, uh, was you know coincided uh, with a, a dialogue that was a composite dialogue, but also because things were really heating up in, in Fata and sort of in Swat Valley, right? That's where uh, things started and it exploded after 2007. Uh, but that really limited the ability for Pakistan to sort of concentrate um, uh, sort of effort and maybe even firepower on, on what it was doing uh, on the border with India. That didn't really pick up until really the FATA situation comes under control around 2014. Then you start to see it take off in like cross-border violence, both sort of like infiltration, but also um, uh, uh, cross-border firing uh, and sort of, uh, you know, ceasefire violations, et cetera. Um, so yeah, so I, so I think this is, speaks to sort of like Pakistan's intentions are not to 
create a problem for India today. But the whole point of the report is saying sort of let's bracket intentions for a moment and say what are the material conditions that are being set up. Because I think if Pakistan wanted to, it could change its opinion on this very quickly. Or if, if China f believed it had sufficient leverage to sort of compel Pakistan to sort of create a distraction for India, um, and maybe maybe China sort of has a, a reason to sort of be concerned about this in the event of a you know a conflict uh, with the United States, then then I think it, it's quite possible it could it could turn on a dime again, uh, maybe not on a dime, but sort of pretty quickly. So that's that's sort of I, mean, I I agree with you on sort of that it's it's noteworthy that Pakistan sort of signaled this sort of different uh, different expectations and intentions, but I wouldn't sort of bank on that forever. Um, on the recommendations question, Elizabeth, you, you raised uh, is a good question. Um, so, uh, look, I think I think the problem is that we don't have control over this stuff, right? This is bilateral relationships with other countries, but I do think we should be attentive to it a lot more than we are, uh, and plan for it, right? Because I do see uh, a, a strange complacence, at least in public language, that's used about, and it's always about describing, sort of pumping ourselves up about our allies and saying. We're the only country with allies. They're our greatest asset. China doesn't have allies. They don't know how to build allies. Um, they, uh, you know, they have vassal states. Uh, and again, the technical definition of that might be correct. And yet, that sort of elides the problem, which is that China may be able to leverage a lot of assets from other partners in a way that looks a lot like our alliance functions. I mean, what do we care so much about a lot allies for? It's not because we're hoping everybody throws all their firepower in, but we care a lot about access facing and overflight. And we do now care a lot about Japanese firepower. Uh, but I don't think we're, we're counting on the Philippines to sort of pull a major fight, but we are. We care a lot about Clark Air Force Base. So, so I, I think that's uh, the, 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 the thought is that we should, we should at least be planning around this possibility and planning for it in you know, multiple places, not just uh, Pakistan. Um, and then there's an analog that's worth sort of thinking about, and I haven't sort of like run all the way through the end of it, but uh, uh, Isha just sent me this article this morning that I was, I was reading through. It's the case of the U.S. and Yugoslavia in the, in, during the Cold War, right? And um, it hap the, 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 the relationship really sort of picks up because there's a split between Tito and Stalin uh, in the late 40s. But then after that, the U.S. swoops in, right? The U.S. swoops in with sort of military assistance, economic assistance. And its objective is not to sort of bring Tito over to our side, although there's like this language that Eisenhower uses about like, We'd like you to be neutral, but like our kind of neutral or something <laughs> like that. But really, it's about just sort of prevent, preventing sort of Yugoslavia from coming under the sway of the Soviet Union the same way that Warsaw Pact states were sort of being forced to aggregate their divisions to the Warsaw Pact fighting force. Uh, and that's, I think, uh, I'm not sure there's a perfect analogy to this, but I think it, is, it would be in the U.S. interest to ensure that Pakistan, or to, for, for, the, for Pakistan to not aggregate its capabilities with China and to not grant basing access in the event of a major power conflict. Uh, how we do that, I'm not yet sure sort of what, what where sort of that is, but I, I think we should sort of consider that and be sort of thinking about what those options are rather than just writing off Pakistan wholesale as like sort of now part of the China alliance. So maybe that's that's sort of like a a policy sort of process idea rather than an actual policy. Maybe uh, also defer to um, Sonia on like so the CT questions uh, as well. Yeah, maybe I'll, I'll just make a brief comment on the question of how deeply involved is China going to get in the Indian Ocean in a conflict? I, I tend to think not that deeply involved because I, my guess is that if you were to ask a Chinese military planner whether they wanted to run the gauntlet of Malacca and then the Andaman Nicobar Islands in a conflict in which 
let's be honest, the conflict's probably a Taiwan contingency where they're going to need basically all their naval assets protecting amphibious forces trying to land on Taiwan. And do you want to then take, <clears throat> take those forces way far away through two choke points um, to accomplish what? Um, you know, I, I think it's a really hard argument to make. So in peacetime, I can see them being really useful but in wartime, I just don't see a large Chinese force operating in the Indian Ocean, which doesn't mean that we shouldn't be concerned about what's going on in Gwadar, but, I, but it, it maybe frames it a little differently for me. So on um, you know, the CT challenge for, for China, things have, have gotten um, really tough uh, for the Chinese. Uh, the last Chinese ambassador, there's currently no Chinese ambassador in Pakistan, I, I think this is a Sharjah, uh, and the new, uh, I think a new appointment is yet to be made. Uh, the last one w was nearly killed uh, in a suicide bomb attack in, in Quetta in 2021. Uh, and then of course there's been targeting of Chinese, um, um, you know, Chinese workers uh, in Pakistan. And uh, Xi Jinping has complained about that publicly. So I'm sure the you know, there are lots of tough private conversations, but uh, I think when he met um, uh, the current Prime Minister Shabash Sharif, uh, there was a very pointed reference to to security. So, so I think it's uh, it's a big problem, and perhaps one of those those barriers um, uh, complicates thinking on basing. Uh, but at the same time, you know, I you know, I I think we uh, we tend to make assumptions about. Um, Chinese sort of risk acceptance similar to ours, and you know that may not be the case. So, so, so that's something to consider. On Pakistani sort of reliance on China for CT, I think the main area of growth that I'm I'm tracking is um, uh, Chinese drones, uh, UAVs. You know, Pakistan has acquired a lot of them, and I think Samir, you referenced some of those, uh, and Pakistan has been using them to target insurgents. Uh, of both the, the TDP and some of the, the separatist groups. Um, and then given that, you know, those are on, on, on I assume they're on Baidu uh, navigation system. So I think in, in, in many ways, uh, China is powering uh, a critical sort of, you know, kinetic component of Pakistan's CT effort and will do, will have more of a role to play in, in, in months and years to come. Thanks, Asfandir. Bonnie, did you very briefly have anything to say on China's risk acceptance in uh, Pakistan as it's increasingly been targeted? Um, no, not really. I think okay. it was well covered already. Great. Thanks. Thanks so much. Thank you all. I, I'm sure this has, been a, this has been a great and a very rich discussion. There's so much in this paper. I hope we can continue to engage and, and discuss um, uh, all of this. Thank you to Samir uh, for all his hard work, and congratulations on a great paper. I want to especially thank our USIP South Asia team, who's done an amazing job pulling this together, and a special shout out to Max Malat, who's uh, leaving us, uh, leaving our team, but has been an integral part, helped organize this and many other great events, and we wish him all the best. Thank you all for joining us here, and we look forward to having you uh, at USIP once again for future discussions. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this event. If you'd like to listen to more events or explore our other podcasts, visit usip.org forward slash podcasts.